Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Mirren Gitter. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. Well, before we start, it's worth saying that we have moved on to ACAST, which is a very shiny new platform for us. Uh, Super excited to be on it. Why not go over to ACAST, subscribe to our podcast, or subscribe on iTunes, or do both. And don't forget to give us a rating. Do all of that. Subscribe to everything at once. Um, I should also say another public service announcement. Um, I'm Josh Lowe, and I have a very bad cold this week, so I'm sorry if uh, there's any kind of uh, nose-bunged noises, uh, any nasal quality to my speech or anything like that, I will try and keep it uh, clear of that as possible. So um, what are we looking at here, Miriam? What are we talking about this week? Well, we're talking about the thorny issue of being a woman and how basically the the US general election seems to have been dominated by, by women. You know, you've got on one hand a woman running for the highest office arguably in the world and you've also on the other hand got a man running for the office who denigrates women at every single opportunity. And I have to say, as as a woman, I hope it's clear from my voice that I am a woman, it is disgusting and depressing, the stuff that we have seen coming out of the US. So it's really, yeah, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? It's it's an absolute split. On the one hand, you might get um, one of the greatest achievements by a woman in the West uh, ever in history. And on the other hand, you might get something a lot of women think are terrifying. And also, I I don't know, I'm interested in kind of how women uh, vote historically in the US, how they vote around the world, what they're looking for. Um, You know, this isn't just this election, is it? It's all sorts of stuff. Exactly. Well, Josh is a, a facts and figures man. I'm more interested in just going over all the the various Trump scandals that (laughs) have involved women um, and that seem to be pouring out and I'm sure will continue to pour out right up until November 8th. To join us in this episode, we've roped in two Newsweek reporters. So they're based in our New York office. They are both women and they're wonderful. So let's hear from them. Who have we got joining us? Hi, I'm Nina Burley and I cover national politics for Newsweek out of New York. And I'm Michelle Gorman. I'm a politics reporter for Newsweek in New York as well. Let's start there then with this election. Why are so few women going to vote for Trump? If that's not too obvious a question. (laughs) (laughs) We've been seeing this since the beginning of the primary season. Uh, In the first debate ever in this election in August, Trump came out calling out Rosie O'Donnell used really strong terminology against women. Um, The fight between Fox News' Megyn Kelly started then. Um, So we've really seen this literally since the beginning of the election. Um, And since then, you know, why, you know, Megyn Kelly and Trump have since made up, it seems, but he made fun of, if you remember, Carly Fiorina's face uh, during the primary season. It's not only just women, he also, um, you know, has mocked journalists. He mocked Arizona Senator John McCain. And then most recently, we have this uh, 2005 audio recording that came out. And of course, several women who have come out in the past week um, talking about the unwanted sexual advances that he allegedly was involved in. I'd be so interested to hear. I mean, obviously, we are we're shocked in, in the UK to hear this. This just doesn't happen that, you know, say when we're having our, our elections, that these sort of accusations are levied against someone who's running for prime minister. What's it like in the US uh, as these allegations come out? I mean, it must just be just so shocking. I mean, or are you shocked? Are you you surprised at all? Well, I think at one level, nobody's really shocked because Trump's been hiding in plain sight. I mean, he was he's a very well known media figure in 
not just New York City where he started, but nationally because of his um, uh, apprentice television show and, of course, the books that he's written. And so he's already a celebrity, well-known, and his comments about women, uh, degrading comments about women, were well-known, and there are many of them out there. Going back to the 80s, he was a uh, regular on the Howard Stern radio show, which is a nationally syndicated show out of New York, where they would bring strippers in and, and make fun of women basically every day. It was part of their shtick, and if they had Trump on, he got right in it with them. There are endless examples of his behavior and comment, well, comments, basically, and then these women Women only started to come out after that tape that was released uh, a few weeks ago. Um, And now we have, I think we're up to, I don't know, 10 or 15 women who have basically confirmed that when he talked about unwanted kissing and unwanted grabbing of women's genitals, that that actually happened to them. And he wasn't just bragging about it in, you know, what they're calling locker room talk. So I think the fact that, you know, I don't think people are surprised, but I think at, at some level, uh, just like with the Bill Cosby case and other cases um, that we've seen where with Roger Ailes at, at Fox, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with that, but there there's another example of a man with um, a horrendous track record with females. And, and when, when sort of the dam breaks, one woman steps forward, then others come forward. And, you know, it's almost like Saudi Arabia where, you know, how many women's testimony does it take before people believe that this actually happened? But you asked how women responded to it. And I think the tape followed by all of these women coming forward then followed like with the cherry on top of the Sunday with the debate appearance in which he, you know, he had steeled himself up to physically dominate Hillary Clinton. And every woman watching that, I think, recognized what was going on by the end of the debate where he loomed behind her and she looked small, you know, because he kept stepping into her space and he is a large man. And also the subject matter was so prurient and awful. And I think everyone that I've talked to about it, every woman said they felt literally sickened watching it. Just going to say, I think it's interesting because you see Billy Bush, he was a Today Show correspondent here, and he uh, was in that 2005 taping with Donald Trump. And he just this week was let go from the Today Show. NBC decided to cut ties with Billy Bush So that's, you know, in broadcast media. But then, like you're saying, we have this presidential candidate who could possibly be running the country saying these things about women and the results are showing in the polls. But other than that, so far, he's still a candidate. Well, so, you know, there is this, I guess, fear in some ways and, and disgust that women are feeling about Trump himself. And it's not just Trump, is it? It's it's that women have been in some ways drifting to the left um, historically in the U.S. And uh, Nina, I think you mentioned you were writing something on that. I mean, why is that? What's uh, What's been happening there? This election is predicted to have an historic gender gap. But let's just start with what is the gender gap? The definition of the gender gap is actually the margin by which more men vote for a certain candidate and more women vote for a certain candidate added together. So in 2012, I believe the margin uh, added together was 18 points. So there were 7% more men voted for Romney and 11% more women voted for 
Obama. So they add those two numbers together and you come to 18. Those numbers have grown over the last 20 years, grown and they've sometimes they've gone down, but it's the general trend has been since 1980, since the election of Reagan, women drifting somewhat to the left. Now, I actually was reading an academic article this morning in which political scientists had analyzed it slightly differently and said, in fact, it's not women who are changing, it's men moving to the right. And that that drift goes all the way back to the early 60s with Goldwater, who it was kind of the proto- extreme right-wing candidate in our political history, in our recent political history. And interestingly, before 1960, women were reliably more right-wing than men, that the gender gap did not exist. So the theory of the gender gap is that as women's place in society changes, their voting habits begin to turn left. And those numbers are also being seen in other post-industrial societies, but it started later in Western Europe. There are larger factors here then, but what has the Republican Party done to combat this? Has it done anything? We've actually got a clip, um, which I thought was quite funny while I was doing my research for this to play, which is from the Senate race, the Michigan Senate race a couple of years ago between the Republican Terry Lynn Land and the Democrat Gary Peters. And this was um, Terry Lynn trying to address his criticisms that the Republicans would do nothing to women. And her argument is basically, well, I am a woman. Congressman Gary Peters and his buddies want you to believe I'm waging a war on women. Really? Think about that for a moment. I'm Terry Lynn Land, and I approve this message because as a woman, I might know a little bit more about women than Gary Peters. So, I mean, is that the best the Republicans have got? Well, I think that they're losing the women's vote, and they've been losing the women's vote over time because of these anti-women policies in their in their platform and in the uh, in the legislation that they promote, the policies that they promote. And according to the numbers, the early gender gap with Reagan had more to do with women being less interested in, say, defense spending, which was sort of a male issue, and more concerned about government policies, domestic policies. And those were the reasons why they favored the Democrats. In the last 10 or 15 years, uh, let's say since the last historic gender gap, which was in 1996, that broke all the records before, that was a Clinton year. Since then, the Republican Party has been moving in a direction that is perceived as anti-woman to such an extent, especially with the, I think, reproductive choice issues that, and of course, childcare and uh, equal pay for women, that women are responding to that and fleeing to the left, to the Democrats, for those reasons. One thing that I wanted to touch on, which I think, um, Michelle, you mentioned uh, to me in an earlier conversation that this is kind of your your specialist area, is what is it specifically that young women want? Because we know that sort of women of a certain age who vote Democrat, they will be thinking about perhaps childcare policies and that kind of thing. But what is it specifically that sort of young, and I'm going to use a word I hate, but what is it that young millennial women want? I also hate that word, but <laughs> well, we're both we'll millennials, so I think we got called it a lot. Yes. Well, I think women of different ages will want different things, um, right? So 
uh, I actually polled a few of my friends uh, for this podcast for this exact question, and the three common answers that I received were they want to see a candidate who has empathy, who they can identify and feel compassion for outside of their own personal realm. The second was that they have experience, uh, you know, proven ability to endure any hardship. And then the last was equality, which is kind of what we're talking about. You know, someone who sees that men and women still really aren't viewed as equals in the year 2016, and they want someone who will uh, work toward this. Now, with that being said, I think that some millennials, or they don't support Hillary Clinton. They don't see themselves reflected in her. A lot of them, I think, were strong Bernie Sanders fans and are still deeply holding on to that, despite him, you know, encouraging his supporters to back uh, Clinton. But I think for the younger generation, Clinton kind of comes across maybe as an entitled, you know, politician um, who they can't identify with. Um, she might come off me maybe even as like a know-it-all to some of these younger women. But the numbers do show that Clinton is polling better than Trump among young women. So even though it's not great, uh, she's still doing better. Uh, only 47% of money women support Clinton, whereas 18% support Trump. And you can compare that to 65% of young men support Clinton. So there's a big difference there. You know, as you say, that gap is being made up a little bit. Millennials, there's that word again, um, can be quite sort of sceptical. They don't necessarily respond to some traditional campaigning techniques. I mean, we've got a clip actually of the very controversial moment when um, Madeleine Albright was talking about there being a special place in hell, was her phrase, for women that don't support other women. Hillary Clinton will always be there for you. And just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. <laughs> Now, I'm not a campaign strategist, but it doesn't feel like the kind of most compelling message telling people that are having doubts about your candidate that they might be going to hell. Um, have you seen uh, things from the Clinton campaign that you think are doing well at persuading young women to come on side? Are they offering things to them that, that they want now? Well, let's just go back a little. So Trump accuses Clinton of playing the women's card, and Clinton continually says if, if fighting for women's health care and paid family leave and equal pay is playing the women's card, then deal me in. And, you know, the crowd erupts and cheers. And then her whole women's rights are human's rights, which she said uh, in 1995. Those two lines, they stick out in my mind as to parts of her main goals. And those, and those do resonate with, with younger women as they re resonate across the generational gap. But I think for Clinton, one of the things about her that is so unfair in some way are that she would perceive as unfair. And I think her supporters, her generation would perceive as, as sort of having been dealt a bad hand is that uh, she was a revolutionary in her generation. Um, you know, there are these pictures of her from Wellesley where, you know, she's uh, dressed like a hippie and she's clearly, uh, you know, her, her famous commencement speech at Wellesley, uh, which Rush Limbaugh and other right-wingers have never stopped making fun of, where she talked about, you know, how her generation was seeking more penetrating and ecstatic modes of existence and, you know, using that kind of language that's associated with the 60s. And so her generation, the women who are now in their late 60s uh, and 70s, like she is, they look at her and they see this fighter for women's rights. And younger women look at her and see grandma. And, um, you know, the person in the pantsuit who also is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. There's a generation gap that she's facing. And 
Of course, this election really is a battle between two baby boomers, kind of the the dinosaurs fighting out their last battle. Um, they're fighting a battle that for women anyway, should have been set put to rest a long time ago. So it's it strikes me that if you're a woman voting in America, you don't have the best choice, really, because, you know, you've got a man who calls women pigs, slobs and, and dogs, and it's just, I think, an abhorrent choice for so many. But then you've also got a woman who actually doesn't have the best record when it comes to promoting women's rights. And yes, she's paying lip service to it now. But we've got a clip from Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, which kind of proves that sometimes with these politicians, all it is is just rhetoric and lip service. I'm going to keep saying loud and clearly that I am a feminist uh, until... (laughs) Hear me roar. Until it is met with a shrug. So this is the thing, right? You can say I'm a feminist and I, I play the women's card, but what worries me a bit is that people aren't really scrutinizing Hillary's policies because she's really the only alternative for so many women. You guys, obviously, you're more in depth and into this than we are, is she on a pro-women platform? Is she going to help ordinary American women? I think that she is going to help ordinary women and is somebody with a track record of being for women. I mean, just starting with, as a Secretary of State, she did uh, make a point of meeting with women in every country. She instructed the um, the embassies or the ambassadors in every country, the diplomatic corps, whenever she visited, and she visited a lot of countries. You know, she covered a million miles, and she insisted that they always bring women in to the meetings. And so the, the staffs in all these countries had to scramble up and find females who were involved in civil society programs and bring them in. She also set up a an office, uh, a special ambassador for women's uh, issues, Milan Verveer, who was running around the world trying to coax these, you know, countries into um, putting more effort into bringing women into the economy. So uh, on that level, certainly at this at state, she has that record. Um, of course, she doesn't have a record of Uh, which I think is disappointing, of really standing up against some of these really misogynistic Gulf countries, you know, the driving issue in uh, whether women could drive in Saudi Arabia. You didn't hear her get up and really make noise about that. She's very politic when she's dealing with these leaders of some of these countries. But on another level, I think she's going to be de facto uh, helpful to women in that for the first time, because she surrounds herself with female advisors, I mean, she has a lot of male advisors too, but I think for the first time you're going to see a White House where there's a a kind of a gender uh, equality um, in the cabinet. I think there will be a lot of women in the Oval Office. You know, the Oval Office is like a locker room. I mean, not the kind of locker room that Trump's talking about, but it's usually men (laughs) with one woman. And I think it's going to be now heavier on the female side. And that is a defect improvement because the White House then will have that voice and those ideas in dealing with Congress and in making policies. So I think in that sense, she is going to be helpful to, to younger women. And she has somewhat of a record at, at, in the Senate of working on uh, on women's issues. And of course, she does give, as you said, she gives lip service to it. And she's she's known for that uh, that statement in um in 95, which Michelle just mentioned about women's rights being human rights, which seems so obvious. And yet it meant so much to women in 
third world countries are, or, you know, in places where there where women are really not treated uh, like full citizens or even full human beings. I agree. I mean, I think obviously we've never seen what what would could happen if we have a woman president, but not to play this woman's card, but since she, you know, is a woman, I think she's going to try to fight for legislation uh, that inherently benefits women. My fear is Congress. Um, I think, you know, depending on what happens with control of Congress, I think it will... her biggest battle could be getting legislation through uh, that does benefit women. And then we also have the issue of the Supreme Court, which is a whole other, I think, podcast topic. (laughs) So just to kind of uh, wrap things up a little bit, could I try and push both of you to give me maybe one policy or one set of policies that you think the candidates could pledge that you think would immeasurably improve the lives of, of women in America? What would what would you want to see them doing that perhaps they aren't already that you think could really, really change things for women? I think there's there's probably a lot of different options. There's a I lot of policies, but, let's, from, let's, but let's be disciplined. I think paid family leave is really important. Um, and that has been something she has been advocating for, right? I mean, she, I, I um, that would be what I would choose. Yeah, I mean, I, I related to that. I think the number one issue for women would be childcare, uh, but of course I'm of the generation of the age that we were that I've seen what not having that means to women. Um, but I also think for younger women in 25 states you can't even get an abortion. You have to drive be driven across state lines. And I think you know her pushing back against this this outrageous. Um, attack on women's health care across the country, I think that that will make a big difference um, in, in younger women's lives, too. Okay, Nina and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a fascinating discussion, as, as I hope it always is. Just a reminder that you can catch us every week on iTunes and Acast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you like what you hear, give us a rating. Visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 